Hi, welcome to the Indie Wine Podcast. My name is Matt Wood, and this is episode eight. I recently spoke with Christy Tacey of Tessier Winery. We persevered through some power outages due to the storms in Northern California and talked about her transition from microbiologist to natural winemaker, as well as making Pinot Noir from Anderson Valley and the Santa Cruz Mountains, making skin contact whites, and what music means in her life. I hope you enjoy. Here we go. So you started in microbiology, right? Yeah, I have a degree in microbiology, um, biology from the University of Michigan. And then I promptly moved to California after I got my degree. <laughs> um, I grew up born and raised in Michigan. How come you decided to leave? Uh, I just, there wasn't a lot of diversity, pretty homogeneous population. And I had visited California a couple of years before I graduated and really found it to be, the weather was great, um, uh, just a lot of diversity, lots of different kinds of food, um, just like less judginess. If you were like slightly different, I felt like it was more accepted. And I don't know, I just, I just felt like at home here. That's great. And have you always had an interest in wine or did that start more as you, when you moved to California? Uh, yeah, it started more when I moved to California. I mean, um, in classes and stuff, of course, we talked about fermentation and wine, but I, I wasn't drinking wine, really, you know, just like crappy stuff, <laughs> like <laughs> Boone's Farm and like <laughs> stuff like that in high school. <laughs> Embarrassing. Yeah, but, yeah. That's okay. You're not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> what caused you to want to make wine your full-time career? Um, well, when I, I visited a winery when I was 21, my cousin took me wine tasting up in Sonoma. And that's when I was like, this is a lifestyle that I want, you know? And, and I didn't really understand all the different grapes, like made the different wines, like all the different varietals. And I just started like cluing into that. Um, and thought, you know, going through the cellar and stuff like, oh, this is like a lab and, mm -hmm. you know, this is really cool. Like there's a, there's the behind the scenes and then there's also people enjoying it and just having fun and um, beautiful property. Like I was always into the natural sciences. So like soil, uh, botany and, okay. and ecology, like those were the things that I really liked in college. And um I just thought like it all could really come together. And I also like the idea of working with your hands and like making a product. I really wanted a passionate career. So that was kind of what was missing in my science career. Um, I, I started in the genomics field because that was uh, kind of hot at the time. And that's very like microscience. So we were working with single nucleotide polymorphisms, which is even smaller than genes. Okay. And I worked on the Human Genome Project and then um, later at a biotech that kind of applied that knowledge to different disease groups. And it was just very micro. And I just didn't feel like it really fit me that well. So I wanted something... Um, more, you know, that I could touch. And um, I also liked wine that there are many facets of it. 
like I said, the community part, the, the behind the scenes part. And I thought that was really cool too, that I would, wouldn't get bored, you know? Okay. Did you work for other wineries as you were getting into the business? How did you make that transition? Right. So I, when I was a research scientist, I kind of sat at my computer, like researching wineries I had went to, and I was really uh, curious about the small brands. So I would email them. And they were all like, don't quit your day job. You know, <laughs> we, we don't have any money to hire anybody. And now like, I totally get it. Um, so I wasn't really sure how to get into that, but I, I wanted to. And um, there was an urban winery in Oakland at the time the Lost Canyon Winery. Okay. And I had went by there. I was really into Pinot Noir at that time too. And I tasted with them and I was just so excited about it. And um, I was so excited that they were offering a job for operations manager, assistant winemaker to kind of like do everything. So I felt like it was a sign. And I had also listened to this NPR story about someone like, changing their job, you know, even make, even though you made less money, but doing like a big career change. Cause my Midwestern instincts were not that, <laughs> you know, they were like, <laughs> this is just my job. Like, this is my career now. You know, I was mm -hmm. like 30, 31, 32 that I was really questioning my career path. Okay. Um, so I just took all of that as a sign and I ended up getting the job and, um, they were really great. The two guys were uh, used to run special needs schools, and they still had their day jobs. And so I was taking over running the winery while they were working. But they were very encouraging, and I did everything alongside of them. And just like so much positive reinforcement that I hadn't really encountered in the science world. I, you know, I never really felt smart enough, and and it's kind mm -hmm. of like a critical career path too, like. Because everything needs to be so precise and perfect, and um, it, it was just really great. But after three years, they decided they were going to sell the brand, and that's when I decided to start my own brand. But I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it at the time. It was in two thousand nine. So, yeah, I did my first vintage. They they connected me with a grower, Sarah Lee Condi, up in Sonoma County. And she agreed to sell me my first, uh, I think it was two tons of grapes. So I was really excited. And um, that's where it all began. Working for others, were you able to learn a lot of the nuts and bolts and kind of the day-to-day -day of running a small winery? I imagine that was pretty helpful. For sure. Uh, at Lost Canyon, they were home winemakers before they um, got the space and launched their brand. So... When you know, I was running their wine club, I was running their tasting room, and so it just did help me see the whole big picture. Then I would do the government reporting and like all the behind the scenes stuff. And at the time, I also took some lab classes at Davis to set up their lab in house, so I could do the lab testing to save them money and okay. teach them how to do that. So that was really cool too. And when it came down to them selling, then I sold off all their equipment. And I sold their lab equipment and I became a consultant for this small brand down in San Carlos. And so I did that for five years consulting. And um, then I also did a 
a small stint with uh, J.C. Sellers in Oakland. His okay. assistant winemaker mm-hmm. hurt his back like right before bottling. And so I came in and took over for the for the bottling time frame, like for two months. So I was just kind of do you know? It, it was great to work in other people's cellars to see how they made wine, and um, and also around that time I started going to France and meeting with winemakers, and they were really cool to bring me in behind the scenes and talk to me about winemaking and see how they did it, and. Um, then I really started to clue into natural winemaking and terroir-driven wines, and it kind of was all starting to come together. Uh, before that, I was also doing the certificate program, uh, the winemaking, the certificate in winemaking at Davis. Uh, so that's a different way of winemaking. Um, you know, doing a lot of additives and um, being very clinical. Where then when I went to France, it was kind of like unlearning that. And that's kind of how I make wine now. <laughs> did you start Tessier as kind of a natural leaning winery from the start? Or did you more gradually lean into that side of it? Definitely. I, I it, it just kind of happened over time. I mean, I was so nervous in the beginning that I didn't want anything to go wrong um, you know, I was putting my money into this from my past career and, um, the partner I was with at the time was like, what are you doing? This is crazy. You know, <laughs> not very supportive. Um, so that didn't help either. And it, it wasn't until I, I got more confidence working with, uh, you know, making more vintages and working with the same fruit kind of year after year and, and then going to France and kind of putting it all together that, I went fully natural in 2015. I was reading about native ferments. I really wanted to do it, but I was afraid. Okay. You know, it just seems so scary coming from the science world. Uh, but I, I was, you know, I really wanted to do it. And I already was like super into terroir driven, you know, really let the, the fruit be the spokesperson for the wine and, um, but right. It wasn't until 2015 that I went all native. Does your science background help you monitor fermentations or ML? Do you think that helps you get ahead of any issues that might be developing? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a helpful guide to use science, um, just to, you know, clue in to where it's at. I mean, I can kind of guess when I taste but it's just nice to really know and know if there's a problem occurring, you know, when you look at like volatile acidity and I mean, yeah, you can smell it, but it's just good to know a number and kind of see like how much it's going up um, and when you need to really worry about it. Mm -hmm. And just pH is super important. Like, even though I feel like I could kind of guess, it's really good to know the number because that's what keeps your wine protected and safe. So that's a very helpful one to know. And that's one of them, the big ones that I use to figure out what I'm going to pick then. Okay. You kind of base your, your picking on a lot, a lot of it's based on pH. Yeah. Acid and then second bricks and then weather, then logistics. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find logistics can be one of the more challenging parts picking as a, as a small winemaker? For sure. For sure. Uh, 
you know, just like the weather has been really intense. And then it seems like it always is falling around Labor Day weekend. And then it's really hard to get a truck. Like as a small winemaker, a small brand, I don't have a space. I don't have a truck. You know, I have to mm -hmm. rent a box truck because they never have any flatbed trucks. So you have to make sure you can get that. And then just trying to figure out where, you know, to drop the bins that night or get up there that morning. And if you can stay the night at a hotel nearby, that makes it easier. So you're not driving so early and you have enough sleep. I mean, I'm a lot nicer to myself now, but in the beginning <laughs> I would just, you know, get up at 3am, drive there, get the fruit and then drive back and process it. And I just, you know, I don't, I'm trying to do things better and okay. <laughs> just give myself um, rest and try to, I don't know, make make a good plan, make a solid plan, not a uh, stressed out plan. Maintain as much sanity as possible during that, yeah. during that time. Right. The vineyards you work with are spread out through a pretty large area. So I imagine you put some miles in yeah. during, during harvest time, like what Arroyo Seco and, and Santa Cruz mountains and then over to El Dorado. Um, is there anywhere Anderson else? You, Valley. Anderson Valley. Okay. And San Benito, but everywhere it's like two hours all around Berkeley. Like Berkeley, I always feel like is my, my center spot because that's where I live. And then the winery is in Healdsburg. So yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of driving and, um, I keep trying to get trucking to help me out, um, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And I'm back in the old U-Haul truck. <laughs> <laughs> the first vintages were Pinot. And wh where did you go from there with grapes? Yeah, I was obsessed with Pinot. So the first three years, that's all I made. Um, but I went to France and I was in the, the Southern Rhone and I was really wowed by Grenache on its own in Gigondas. And then I was thinking when I get back, I'm going to find some Grenache. And that's when I connected with El Dorado, with Ron Mansfield. And, you know, he was such a supporter and such a great guy. You know, we just like, it was a handshake deal. Um, but he wanted to meet me in person uh, before he would sell me fruit. And then the, the mountain fruit is so cool. It's just massive, massive clusters. Uh, so 2012 was the, the first vintage I, I made Grenache. And from there, I don't know what happened. Now I make <laughs> so many. <laughs> like I've added on, uh, you know, Riesling, Albarino, Pinot Gris. Um, what else? I wrote them down so I wouldn't forget. <laughs> Chardonnay, Mortau, uh, Syrah, Mavet, Cab Franc. Gamay. <laughs> <laughs> little, little of everything. <laughs> little of everything, but mainly French varietals, except for the Albarino. But now it gets harder, or I mean, not harder, but like I really want organic fruit. And um, so now I'm kind of looking to be like, what do you have all that's organic? And, and then I try to think like, would that be an interesting wine? Let me see what that's like. So... <laughs> Do you try to keep your focus on French varietals? Yeah, that's my main area of passion. And I did the French Wine Scholar program uh, over COVID just to even further my love of French wines. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that that is always 
something I'm really into. And I'm going to France in May. And whenever I go, I'm super inspired and come back with like new ideas and new grapes that I want to seek out and try new wines I want to make. Do you have any grapes right now that you've really wanted to work with that you haven't been able to yet? You know, Gamay, I haven't been able to make it for the past three years and I really Mm. miss it. That is uh, one of my favorites for sure. I'd like to find some Trousseau as well. I just like those light reds. Uh, You know, it's still in that Pinot Noir kind of family. Like I love light but complex um, and subtle. (laughs) You made Gamay a few years from Barsodi. Is that where? Yeah. the game I came from. Right. But the, you know, the fires in 2020 and 2021. And then last year there was a lot of frost and they didn't, they didn't have much. And then fires like right before everything was harvested too, just kind of didn't work out, but I'm hoping for this year. Yeah. Mother nature has been a little bit cruel. The, the a little bit of, years. yeah, definitely. I, I mean, it's, it's made me pivot and I get a little bit I mean, this is why I'm happy that I get fruit from all of these areas that I can pivot and not be like totally like, oh, I'm at a loss. Mm-hmm. So that's, I've been getting a lot more from San Benito and Arroyo Seco because of that in the last two years. What is it exactly that you source from down there? Uh, Arroyo Seco, I started working with Zabala Vineyard in 2017. I was seeking Riesling because it's a great area for it. It's like, the soil is an old riverbed and there's lots of granite and pink granite, just tons of boulders, like super rocky. And I think like the expression is really neat and um, lots of minerality. And then I just added on Chardonnay. And that was from the last time I went to France in 2019. I was really inspired by a skin contact Chardonnay I had with a small natural producer in Beaujolais. And then I'm like, when I get back, I want to, I want to experiment with skin contact Chardonnay. And then I got Grenache last year as well to put into the Femme Fatale Rosé because I love that the Grenache and Pinot together. It's hmm. it's a sweet spot for <laughs> Rosé, in my opinion. <laughs> for the orange wines, when you are doing the skin fermentation, are you doing any extended aging on the skins or are you fermenting on the skins for a, a few days or until dryness? How do you manage and, and decide how long to go with those? Uh, I, I, every year, it's it's an experiment, um, but I usually kind of test out. Like with the Riesling, the first year I did two days on the skins and then kind of saw how I liked that. So then I was like, oh, for 2018, I'm going to do you know another day longer. Like because I've been trained in the lab, I write everything down very meticulously in my lab notebook to remember what I did, you know, previously to kind of carry it forward or make changes. So a lot of them, I kind of start with two to three days and see if I want to increase it. I haven't done any extended time on the skins. So usually we bring it in, de-stem it, put it into bins, then wait the amount of time and it usually starts fermenting and then press it and let it finish fermenting in um, stainless steel. Are you keeping it in stainless its entire aging life until bottling or does it tend to go to wood or anything? This year I did 
get some neutral French oak barrels. So I've been experimenting with that a little bit. The Pinot Gris I put in the barrel for a couple months. And now the Chardonnay is in barrel for a little bit just to give some uh, mid-palate and kind of texture or body to the wine. So it's just like another little tool, but mm-hmm. I'm still, you know, this is like the first time I've been doing it. We'll see if I carry it forward. And a lot of your reds use some percentage of whole cluster fermentation. What do you like about some whole cluster on the reds? Uh, I mean, it gives that partial carbonic vibe. So a little bit of those uh, fruitier notes. It just kind of amplifies the um, the fruity uh, banana-like aromatics. And then also, uh, I like that it's more terroir from the place, you know, leaving the stems on. I'll, I'll usually do, you know, like one, one bin of the six bins. So it works out to be like 25%, 20%. Um, that I keep whole cluster and it's just, yeah, incorporating more for more expression from the sense or from the, from the place. Okay. So that tends to be, uh, an entirely separate fermentation than the, than the destemmed fruit. No, no, it goes in together. So usually I put the whole clusters in first into the tank and then we put the, um, destemmed on top. Okay. Sorry, I missed Or in a in a or in a uh, fermentation bin, we'll put like kind of by eye um, the whole cluster in first, and then the um, destemmed fruit on top. And I mean, sometimes like with the Pinot Noir from 2019 from Anderson Valley, I did 100% whole cluster. Like the the clusters were just so beautiful and perfect that I loved like just the tactile sorting sorting them. And I'm like, I don't want that them to go through a machine to be destemmed. Mm-hmm. So like some sometimes I make decisions like that and like it's really neat to to see how that ages and changes and um and then for the 2019 I did 50% whole cluster. I just did last but just the fruit was so beautiful that year that just my instincts were like don't do anything, you know. <laughs> What are the, some of the differences you notice working with the Anderson Valley Pinot versus the Santa Cruz? Uh, those are my two favorite areas for Pinot Noir. And the Anderson Valley fruit is a lot more earthy. It's coastal, but it's in the valley there at Filigreen Farm. And the Pinot that I've worked with for 2018 and 2019 is Old Vine. They were planted in, um, or they're, they're 75 year old vines. And on St. George rootstock and they're all pomard clone. And that's a really earthy clone anyways, but they don't, the, the vines don't function, um, as, as well. Like they're not as prolific. They don't put out as much fruit, but the fruit is very high quality with thicker skins and just lots of earthy notes like beets, rhubarb, um, cherry, uh, in contrast with the Santa Cruz mountain Pinot, which is in Coralitos. So it's, it's low elevation and there's uh, lots of sandy soils, lots of, lots of morning fog, which there's fog in Anderson Valley too, but it's more coastal. And uh, the expression of fruit is more pomegranate, hibiscus. And it's a blend of clones um, where the Anderson Valley is just the one clone. So I think it gives it a... Like more more fruitiness, and then just kind of 
the terroir of each of the places. Like in the Anderson Valley, I get like pine resin, tar, and the Santa Cruz Mountain Pinot would get like bay leaves and like fennel pollen. Like when you're walking around the vineyards, I smell the fennel all the time. And I feel like it gets into the wine too. What are some of the elements that an ideal wine has for you? Uh, I, I mean, I like a couple years in the bottle. And then I just think that brings out more and more complexity. Um, and I'm just, I, I love when it keeps evolving in the glass. Like you open it and you're like, oh, wow, it seems kind of closed. And you keep swirling it and talking with your friends and then waiting and then revisiting it. And then you'll get like more layers. And as time goes on, you get even more. And then maybe you'll be like, wow, I really want another glass of that. And then it's already like at a different point because it's been open for a little while. And um, I just love complexity and just not in your face. Like I want to take the time to discover it myself. That's probably why I like Pinot Noir and Gamay. <laughs> yeah, all those lighter reds. Yeah. Did you have any difficulties getting started as a woman in the wine business? I mean, that's a loaded question. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, of course, of course. But a um, lot of annoyances for sure. But it just made me stronger and um, I really just worked harder to prove myself and um, – try to not let it bother me. And now um, I feel like there are a lot of things that are out there for women in the industry, uh, a lot of groups to support them, which I wish I would have had, but I didn't. And I, I, I also try to reach out to other female winemakers that I see in, in the field and just kind of say like, you know, I see you and I know how hard it is and keep up the good work kind of thing. But Batonage is a, a great thing that was started. I can't remember when it started, maybe 2017 or something. And it's really like a community of women in all aspects of the wine industry. And then Wine Fair also in San Francisco, started by Pamela Bush, is all natural winemakers, but like putting forward women in the industry. And it's been really nice to just connect in that way and I started a wine tasting group in 2016 with all women and now it's called the nasty women group. <laughs> I mean, we did it like from the Trump days. That's why we yeah. it got renamed to that. I think it was like Bible study before that. <laughs> and I, I don't, I can't always attend, but like I got it going and I just passed it off um, to another woman to just kind of keep, keep it going. Cause I think it's really beneficial for women that want to just get into the industry and start tasting and and just practice, you know, it takes practice to smell and and use your sense memory to attach the flavors and smells, and um, yeah, so it's it's been hard, but I feel like this is going to be my fifteenth harvest this, this year in twenty twenty three, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've made it against all odds and. Those are some of the tools that I feel like are helpful now. That's great that you're able to kind of support the next generation, give more resources. Yes, exactly. And there are a lot of allies out there. I mean, um, so I just keep looking for my community and people that um, care about 
me and my business and that are there for me. That's really important because it's a very challenging career. Every bottle of yours, you have the the science as art on the label. Um, can you explain that to me? Yeah, it's it's something that I I had on since the beginning, and the the first ten years of the Tessier label was was around image, like you're looking through a microscope and it had a depiction of yeast cells mm-hmm. um, budding off. And then after 10 years, I decided I should have like a fresher look. And I, I met a really great graphic designer that's helped me a lot. Um, so then I was looking at all these science images. And I'd always said this when I was working as a scientist, like, oh, God, this would be such a cool piece of art. So I, the one that's on the label now is the underside of a sage leaf secreting oil. But mm. just when you're looking at it, it just looks cool and globular, but it's, you know, like like a lava lamp. It's really mm-hmm. relaxing. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it is like a nerdy science thing. So science is art in that way. And then also I feel like I wanted to change my direction of my personality and and my approach to life rather than being so analytical to being more creative and being more calm and kind of letting go and not trying to control things. So it's kind of that way, like looking to art more, but they're both important together and it's a balance. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm always kind of working on that. Has that transition been hard going from somebody very analytical to then natural winemaking where you're kind of intentionally limiting yourself? I mean, it was in the beginning, but I, I liked pushing myself in that way. And I feel like now after 15 years, I'm kind of coming into something new and I'm, I'm really getting into music and community and it's kind of the path that I wanted my life to go. So I had that you know, acorn nugget of it way back <laughs> in my, when I was 30 and, and now I'm able to see it come into fruition and I feel really happy about it. Awesome. You just mentioned the music, but you do music pairings with each wine and you also have a, a monthly show, the KXSF uh, monthly show. What's music mean in your life? Uh, as when I was young from three until 17, I danced ballet, jazz, and acrobatics. And I didn't think it was a big thing, but it really did make me listen to music and feel music. And so it's always been something I turned to to um, feel better, I guess, or feel sad or, you know, just set a mood. But it just feels uh, like therapy to me or something. Mm-hmm. Um and then when I was in college, I saw so many bands. Like that was my scene was like seeing all the garage bands and the basement bands at University of Michigan and going to Detroit just to see every band that I could get a ride to, that I could afford the ticket to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, there's something in music that I like that it's analytical, but then you lose control and you're just making this piece. And I, I wanted to join a band and I was like, this is what I want to do. So I started taking guitar lessons, bass lessons, and I was not good at it. Like it was <laughs> way harder than I thought. So I, I think that I'm just a, 
a bystander. Like it, it just does something to me watching live music and hearing music mm-hmm. that that I can detach and feel really happy. So all that being said, I I was always the woman in the lab, like I would go out late at night and then come in later and like, okay, so, you know, <laughs> so you talked to me for a little bit, like I was not late where no one else went out late or like, you know, did anything. That was always something that was part of my life. So when I started making wine, I'm always listening to music when I'm tasting wines and like doing the process, like pressing and putting it into barrel and then topping. I feel like the wine has a personality to me. And then I wanted to have it be like an experience. Uh, Like the Velvet Underground did this. Like they were one of the first ones to have music and like lights and art and, and kind of immerse it all together. So it's, it's a, it's experience rather than I'm drinking wine. So my idea was to pair the wine with a song. And um, so we started doing that. And all of those are on the, the website too. I got interviewed on KXSF last year. And I thought like, oh my God, this is so cool. I would love to do this. <laughs> and then I, I wanted to be a DJ in college, but okay. I was kind of shy. And I also was really busy with my lab classes and I couldn't really add anything extra in there to, to do that. But my friend was like, you can do it. Like, let's get you in here. And so now I have a monthly show on KXSF, which I'm still kind of nervous and terrified, but it's neat when you're in the studio, no one can see you and I'm just playing music, which I love. And, and it's just like another way to be part of music. I've just did my seventh show and it's a wine and community radio station. So I like to have um, people on to interview them and hear their stories as well as playing music like built around their stories. Or I've also done my harvest playlist, like what I do to prepare for harvest. Like I make a really cool playlist every year and kind of share that with everybody. And then I did a picnic playlist because uh, I was doing a lot of picnics at the time. It's like my favorite thing to do. Uh, but yeah, I love I love KXSF supper sessions on Sundays, five to seven. I do it once a month. That's awesome. Do you enjoy the rush of being kind of live on air? Uh, it is a rush. It's kind of scary. And it's neat that you're just by yourself in the studio, which that calms me. But really, the the board is really old school, and you have to do everything manually. So it's kind of stressful because <laughs> everything has to be done so timely, and then you have to be calm on the air. So a- again, it's that juxtaposition of uh, being like analytical, but then also being calm and cool and cre- you know creative, which is it's fun to challenge myself in that way. And like every once in a while, I feel like I'm in the zone, but I'm always trying to work towards that feeling (laughs) work in progress (laughs) (laughs) anything favorite to play on the station uh i i mean i've been really into soul music so i think like my favorite one was when i interviewed lisa from the punch down in oakland Hmm. and i did a playlist punch drunk love and it was all love music but it was a lot of it was soul uh so like Otis Redding, Lee Fields, uh, Bill Withers. It, w- it was 
it was really good. And I'm seeing uh, Lee Fields tomorrow night at the chapel. I'm so excited oh, about awesome. Yeah. So that, that's another thing that I do to be involved with music. I am a volunteer at the Fox Theater and the Greek Theater in Berkeley. Mm. And any show that I want to see, I sign up for to like help see people. And then I get to see the show. And I just, it gets me out. I see more live music and I'm, you know, part of the community. That's awesome. That sounds like a pretty fun, pretty fun volunteering gig. See lots of yeah. shows. Yes, definitely. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and so many good shows are coming to the Greek this summer that I'm so excited about. Like Sylvanesso, uh, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's, Big Thief. Like, oh, those are going to be great shows. Like Outside, Under the Stars. You got your summer plans all filled up yes. already, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you have some new new spring release wines out. Can you tell me about what you just released? Yeah, we got five new wines out. Um, 20, they're all 20, well, no, they're not all 2022, but most of them are. Um, Electric Ladyland, which is an orange blend, and it's a tribute to Jimi Hendrix. Then the Femme Fatale Rosé, tribute to the Velvet Underground, and that's mm. Grenache and Pinot blend. Um, the Electric Ladyland is seven different grapes, all varying amounts of skin contact. And then the Soul Love is a tribute to David Bowie. And that one is a Riesling and a couple red grapes blended. So it's a chillable red. Okay. Uh, nice. Then also the 2022 Pinot Gris from Filigreen Farm, which is five days on the skins. It's like a true orange wine. And then finally, the 2021 Santa Cruz Mountain Pinot Noir from Severia Vineyard. I didn't make it in 2020, so I'm really excited um, to to put this wine out. Uh, I've been working with that fruit since 2013, so it's one of my faves. Has that wine changed much in the years that you've been working with the fruit? Has it kind of kind of evolved? Yeah, definitely, it's evolved. Uh, there's a neat lineage. Like I love to do a vertical with those. Like we did that during the pandemic and. It's just really, it's a special place, that vineyard, Severia Vineyard. So it's neat to taste it with different vintages. I guess for me, I've been doing less oak just to taste the fruit more. Uh, when I started out, I was doing like 20 to 30% new French oak. And this year, it's all neutral French oak. So you can just really taste the that Santa Cruz Pinot. How are people able to uh, find out about what you and the winery have going on or get some of the new releases? The the best way is through the website and you can sign up for the newsletter so you can get um, updates on, on what we're up to and all the new radio shows that we have coming out. Um, and then you can also check on the website, the stockists who carry our wines. We try to keep that up to date so you can find your favorite wine shop and say, oh good, they do have Tessier. Uh, also, Follow us on Instagram is a good way to see what's happening. We usually um, put all of our events out. And then um, I have a bunch of events coming up. Uh, we're doing a takeover at the Punchdown. So it'll be Tessier's new, some of these new releases. And we're doing pulled pork sandwiches. We're doing food too. So that's really exciting. Um, and that's March 30th. And uh, we'll be at By the Way wine fair april 1st and then doing a winemaker takeover at the rich table in san francisco and that's on april 12th i'll be at raw la uh april 23rd and 24th 
And then Wine Fair is June 10th, which is uh, all women natural winemakers. And then I'll also be doing Net Diego this year. I wasn't able to do it last year, and that's July 7th and 8th. So can catch catch me at one of those things <laughs> to try some of the new wines or whatever wine we're pouring that, that day. Lots of opportunities. So I'm like super worried that we're going to like lose connection. <laughs> so I'm like talking really fast, like <laughs> so you don't have to drop again. I mean, losing power is not optimal. Thanks for listening to episode eight with Christy. I've especially enjoyed the Soul Love as well as the Severia Pinot from the Santa Cruz Mountains and the Mavedro she makes from Goldbud Farms in El Dorado. Really great wines. And speaking of El Dorado, our next episode will be with Chuck Mansfield of Goldbud Farms, where he'll be discussing the history of agriculture and viticulture in El Dorado, working with a wide variety of winemakers and farming these high elevation sites. You can follow the podcast on wherever you're listening and also the Instagram at IndieWine Podcast for updates or email IndieWinePodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again. Have a good one.